Scripture lesson this morning comes from Ephesians. I'll be reading from the sixth chapter, beginning at verse 10 through verse 20. Finally, be strengthened by the Lord and God's powerful strength. Put on God's armor so that you can make a stand against the tricks of the devil. We aren't fighting against human enemies, but against rulers, authorities, forces of cosmic darkness, and spiritual powers of evil in the heavens. Therefore, pick up the full armor of God so that you can stand your ground on the evil day, and after you have done everything possible, to still stand. So, stand with the belt of truth around your waist. Justice as your breastplate, and put shoes on your feet so that you are ready to spread the good news of peace. Above all, carry the shield of faith so that you can extinguish the flaming arrows of evil. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is God's word. Offer prayers and petitions in the Spirit all the time. Stay alert by hanging in there and praying for all believers. As for me, pray that when I open my mouth, I'll get a message that confidently makes this secret plan of the gospel known. I'm an ambassador in chains for the sake of the gospel. Pray so that the Lord will give me the confidence to say what I have to say. Here ends the reading. May God grant us wisdom and courage for interpretation. A pastor buddy of mine <clears throat> has told me probably more than once how he received a, a notable letter at the parsonage where he and his family live, the church-owned residence uh, in church speak that the, the usual churches have for pastors and families. And so uh, he said this particular letter arrived in the mail on such heavy paper. He said, in, in fact, it was heavier than the kind of paper that uh, is often used to tell you you've been awarded something important or accepted into some institution of higher learning. He said the weight of the paper alone seemed to declare the letter's own importance when he was opening it. He, he said that this giant heavy piece of paper just seemed so fancy, in fact, that he wondered as he, as he was opening this letter if someone had left the church a big bequest in their will. And then, as a pastor might do, he began worrying that someone had died and he didn't know about it. It turned out not to be the case at all. No one had died without telling my pastor friend. It actually turned out to be something far weirder. He said that it was a letter from a company um, that made what they, and they call them, VIP style panic rooms. Or as they preferred to call them, VIP style safe rooms. This uh, letter on this heavy, fancy piece of stationery explained, This world is a troubled place, but your home and your loved ones should always be secure. Who could really argue with that? The letter that he received went on, though, to explain that he and his family could design a safe room within their house, complete with its own power source, communications hub, ventilation system, secure entry, weapons cache, food preparation area, full-spectrum remote-controlled lighting. actually even had, I think, a GPS option to control your lighting. Not sure how that would work out. Um, he said all of these things, and you could have it as hidden 
in your home, under your home, around your home, or as public as you preferred, and choosing whatever specifications you could possibly imagine. He said there were all kind of wild suggestions. Perhaps someone would like a wood-paneled study with button-tufted leather chairs and cut crystal whiskey glasses like an English gentleman's club, or perhaps a western-themed ranch longhouse effect, or even a speakeasy with a pool table and a bathtub. My pastor friend found himself idly wondering if it also came with a machine gun, and I suspect that the answer was that it probably could be provided, of course, provided he was willing to pay for it. It kind of makes me wonder sometimes when I remember this story, what, what kind of panic room would I design? <coughs> Got to be barbecue involved. <laughs> There's no disputing that these are fearful times for many people, the day in which we live. I began to dig around a bit myself and study the market. Uh, and apparently the business of panic rooms really picked up after 9-1-1 and has continued to be even more robust up to the present. One website I checked out noted that with a certain degree of calculated rue that North Korea's missiles could now reach the North American coast and that dangers are all around us. Nevertheless, I think few churches would go for the idea of such a designer panic room in any parsonage or even for some uh, come one, come all shelter located in the church itself. I mean, imagine the committee that would be assigned to decorate that. Now, Pastor, Betsy really likes silk flowers and pastels, but we're concerned that the men are going to think it's too foo-foo. Or is it frou-frou? I don't know. Safe to say, if we're having this conversation, it would be a sign of how remote our worst fears actually were. But more deeply than that, I think we resist the idea of church as a hiding place, a shelter separate from the rest of the world, at least that kind of shelter. At some deep level, if church becomes nothing more than a, a safe house, a panic room, it, it seems as if it diminishes our sense of church as sanctuary, as a place that's set apart as a place that stands for something different than the visceral nature of our political lives in this dog-eat-dog -dog polarized world. Church as we imagine it seems to embody a kind of a different ideal. Church, ideally, I don't think, should be a panic room. There's no actual panic room that we can hole up in for all of life either. There is no safe space, unfortunately, where we can wait out all of the chaos of the world until the teachings of Jesus finally sink in all on their own, apart from any help from us. There is no such place, nor is that our calling. But it's even more than that. It, I think it's that the gospel seems to embody a different kind of ideal from that whole concept of sticking one's head in the proverbial sand, or in this case, a panic room. And it's that ideal that the Apostle Paul, or whomever wrote in the honor of the Apostle Paul here in Ephesians, is getting at with these very famous words in chapter 6, when he admonishes them to put on the whole armor of God. The author is writing to a church that would have eagerly embraced even the most bare-bones kind of panic room had there been such a thing. Paul is writing to a church that knew what actual oppression was in a dark time for Christians all across the region of the Mediterranean. 
the churches that met in the catacombs of the empire at this time did so in no small part because even Roman centurions were reluctant to go out after dark in places of the dead. But not so for Christians who resisted that kind of superstition as part of the old mind they needed to turn away from. Nevertheless, if you can't hunker down physically, there are any number of ways you can hunker down mentally and indeed spiritually. Just because you're willing to worship in the relative safety of a creepy catacomb, I guess, doesn't mean that you're truly open. And for this author, for Paul, that represents a much more serious danger. In verse 12, we're reminded our struggle is not against enemies of blood and flesh, but against rulers, against systems, against authorities, against cosmic powers of this present darkness and spiritual forces of evil. The only thing we have to fear, Franklin Roosevelt said, what? Is fear itself, he said in his first inaugural address, and, and there is some truth to that even today. While there are real things to fear, for sure, the deeper danger is what our worst fears can make of us, no matter how remote they might be. For years we have heard that statistically, fear of crime far outruns the actual likelihood of crime in almost every place on the planet. This is what keeps the people who build panic rooms in business, though. It's not the enemies of flesh and blood who seem poised to undo us, even as they may try their worst, so much as the power of our own worst fears to warp our own perspectives. And make no mistake, fear has the power to warp our perspectives so completely that we can no longer distinguish friends from enemies, or find a way to work for tentative understanding, much less peace. The author's own answer here in this chapter of Ephesians 6 is an invitation to the church to arm itself, but in a different way. To become centurions, but of a particular sort of centurion, who belong in body, in soul, in life, in death, to the way of Jesus. This means not only following a different way, this means up taking up different tools. Instead of the armor of fear, the author invites the church to put on the whole armor of God, a belt of truth instead of leather, a breastplate of righteousness instead of metal, shoes that make their feet ready to lead the charge, not to war, but to peace, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit, which does not kill, but rather brings life through the words of God. Now, I'll admit, through the years, these metaphors here uh, from this author in Ephesians, they tend to cause me a bit of discomfort, because, I, and I think I shy away from them a little bit because they sound conflictual, I mean, literally. And, and the gospel, to me, has no place for violence or war, but but I think the author is saying something important, and I don't want to miss it entirely simply because the author's metaphors in this period of time are different than the ones I would prefer. Um, I think the author was saying in this passage is that people who follow the way of Jesus should be very engaged, not only in our life together, but in society as well. 
And Christians don't do a great job at this, historically speaking, partially because of a fear that engagement in society will lead to an engagement in politics, which, by the way, hasn't stopped a good many. And an engagement in politics would naturally corrupt or compromise one's faith. I see those concerns. But if Christian discipleship is at least partly about staying engaged in the world's struggles for peace and for justice, it is also about demonstrating love, mercy, and justice in the world. And historically, we do this through two means as Christians, service and advocacy or activism. Service and activism represent flip sides of a two-sided coin called Christian discipleship. Activism needs service in order to stay grounded and remain connected to the real needs and interests of people experiencing the brunt of injustice. Service needs activism because without it, service can lead to dependency, failing to address the root causes of neglect and need. And many people naturally gravitate in churches to service, in part because, well, service, um, the impact of service is more immediate. It's easier to see. What did you do? I fed someone that was hungry. I brought clothes to someone who needed them. I helped. I served. And that is much needed. And yet service at its best inspires and deepens the person doing the serving to find out the root causes of why this particular person or group of people would be in need in the first place and potentially raise ruffle a few feathers in finding that out. Now, in order to get to the heart of service and activism, we have to deepen our awareness of the fact that as followers of Jesus, this is our calling. It's not one or the other. It's not choose service or choose activism or advocacy. We are called to do both. We are called to advocate for those, to speak up for those who have no voice. But we are also called to clothe the naked, to feed the hungry, But equally, we are called to embody or activate or advocate for those who do not have the same abilities or the same platforms that we might happen to have. Now, whether the cause is fighting poverty or environmental justice or ending human trafficking, we must seek to constantly adapt to our changing political and economic environments in order to remain engaged as followers of Jesus effectively. We must remain tapped into people's actual reality where they really live, not where we imagine they live while we stay detached in the comfort of our own homes. But we must remain tapped into people's current reality, unlock their moral imaginations, and unleash a sense of their own agency to impact their communities and their world. And so we must know who around us is hurting, why they're hurting, serve them in the name of Jesus, but we must also go further. The currency of democratic change today is measured in part by persistent and regular contact with policymakers. Yes, politicians. Through letters, through phone calls, through emails, through meetings. A few more than maybe I'd be too proud to admit know me by, if not by name, by sight. That big, bald preacher. Here he comes again. And so we have to get the word out that hope is stronger than fear. And when we harness hope and we mobilize hope the right way, 
it's amazing what can happen. To the follower of Jesus, there is, no, there is so much more to public policy than simply asking what many people who, who don't share our value system ask. People who don't, who don't follow the way of Jesus, they, they ask, well, will this policy be good for my pocketbook? Will this, pocket, will, will this policy be good for my end of the world? Will this policy benefit me? Will it be good for the infusion of cash into the economy? The more important discussion from a faith perspective is, whatever policy we're talking about, will it harm or help the poor? Will it harm or help the marginalized? Will this policy not only affect my corner of the world, but what does this mean for my neighbor? The one I know down the street and the one I still haven't brought myself to get to know on the other side. And so friends, embracing the biblical call to social justice requires embracing greater degree of civic engagement and involvement. It requires constant alignment of our own social preferences, our own political preferences with the teachings of Jesus. And it requires us to go further than merely serving someone's immediate needs and requires that we stay engaged for the long haul, working at discovering and fixing the root causes for the pain and suffering in our corners of the world and beyond. Now, this all sounds really pie in the sky, preacher. I mean, can you please just give me the follow-up plan and tell me what to do? Oh, I wish I could. I wish I could give you a quick one, two, three checklist. But loving our neighbor and working for their best interest, it never works that way. Instead, let me ask you to do this as I close. What is in your hand? Miss Simi, you're going, well... I don't mean right now. What is in your heart? And then, how can you use the resources and gifts in your hand and the holy dreams of hope in your heart together to build a better world for your neighbor? Not just for yourselves. There's your next step. What's in your hand? What's in your heart? How can you use them for the greater good? There's your next step, or three. Amen.